Welcome to Policy Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Smith. Today we bring you the second instalment of Policy Guns and Money for this week. In case you missed it, on Tuesday we released a special episode of the podcast to celebrate the launch of ASPE's fourth annual Counterterrorism Yearbook. The publication and podcast are both available now at our ASPE website. In this episode, Louisa and Bart from ASPE's Cyber Centre discuss Bart's recent report on ICT development in the Pacific Islands. And ASPE's Michael and Tom discuss the changing roles of Australia's Defence Department and whether the processes are fit for purpose. But first, Richard Gowan, director of the UN's Crisis Group, talks with Lisa Charland about the impact that COVID-19 will have that isn't being covered by the media. Richard makes a case for why we should be seeking a global response to the pandemic. Well, good evening, Richard. Welcome to the Aspie podcast. Thank you very much. It's uh, good to be chatting. And you're speaking to us from New York at the moment. I thought I might start off by asking how things are and, and what's the city like right now? Well, it's very hard for me to say what New York as a whole is like, because we have been observing uh, the quarantine quite respectfully. Um, The few blocks of Brooklyn that I continue to walk around are actually relatively calm. Uh, We are aware that the, you know, the health system is very stretched. Uh, You do hear a lot of sirens and you do see a lot of ambulances going by. But I... I've seen some reports that suggest the city is already back in the 1970s, but it's not not there yet by any means. It it's a, it actually feels relatively calm, but uh, you know people are nervous. No, understandably, uh, it was I think quite con- confronting to actually see that the the UN itself was was delivering um, supplies and, and aid in the form of masks this week to the city. Well, yes, it was a little strange to discover that the UN had been sitting on a vast number of masks that they found in a basement and were able to give to the city. Uh, Quite why the UN had so many masks lying around is a mystery that I I still still haven't seen resolved. You know, the, the health services are horrifically badly stretched and coordination between Washington and the, the state authorities is obviously very, very poor. So it feels calm on the surface, as I say, but it's pretty depressing to see how you know such an advanced economy can mishandle such a crisis. Yes, I think certainly as someone who has spent considerable time there, it's it's been quite quite shocking in many ways, I think, to watch what's been unfolding. But we're certainly keeping everyone in our thoughts over there as we are elsewhere around the world right now. But what I wanted to, to have a bit of a conversation with you about today was you work with International Crisis Group and... Last week, a piece was published that you were one of the authors on looking at the seven trends to watch as it relates to conflict and COVID-19. And I wanted to get some of your uh, thoughts based on that piece on, I guess, some of the things perhaps that we're we're not watching because understandably, we're all quite focused on our families right now. Uh, We're focused on, on making sure that we keep healthy as we can. So what are some of the things that perhaps that piece brings out that we aren't paying as much attention to as we should be? Well, the thing that we wanted to highlight in the briefing was that COVID in its initial stages has largely hit pretty well-developed countries. Um, you know, after leaving China, you see it in South Korea, you see it in Italy, you see it in the US. And those countries have struggled to handle this disease. What we wanted to emphasize is that it is going to continue to spread. And as it spreads, it's going to 
hit uh, countries that have very, very weak health systems uh, in sub-Saharan Africa. It's going to hit countries where political tensions have hollowed out health services like Venezuela. And it's going to hit refugee camps and it's going to hit displaced person camps in war zones such as Yemen, uh, Syria, and also in, in Bangladesh, where you have the refugees from Myanmar. And everything that we can see and what we're hearing from our crisis group colleagues around the world is that those countries and those displaced populations are just not prepared at all for what is coming. If you look at somewhere like Afghanistan, uh, you have huge numbers of people coming from Iran into Afghanistan. Now, Iran has been one of the early centers of the virus. It seems almost inevitable you'll have a spike of the disease in Afghanistan, just as you will in Syria or, or Yemen. And uh, the results could be overwhelming. And the human cost could actually be much, much greater uh, even than in China or, or in the US. So our, our, our basic argument was that there are places and there are people that have suffered awfully from war and they're going to suffer awfully from this disease too. I think that's that's a very fair point, even if even if some of the developed countries manage to to some extent get this under control, the, the challenges that we're going to see in some of those places that have suffered conflict, if not for years or decades, is going to be ongoing if we don't continue to maintain focus on them. Um, yeah, and the, the other thing to emphasise is that, you know, the disease could also spark or accelerate conflict in countries where the public services are not ready to respond. You know, if you look at uh, African countries in particular, the disease um, is only still emerging there. But a lot of those countries in areas like West Africa are already feeling some economic shocks um, from the slowdown in trade that we've seen already. If they suffer simultaneous health and economic shocks, governments are not going to be able to provide very basic services for the populations. You have a high chance of public unrest. And that public unrest, in some cases, could tip over into more more generalized uh, violence. I mean, I think we're seeing this in a case that we didn't highlight in the briefing, uh, but in India at the moment, uh, the Indian government's sudden de um, decision to uh, lock down the country um, has led to huge, actually huge people movements. And coming with those people movements, we see a lot of anecdotal evidence of uh, violence, violence by the police against protesters. I mean, that's something we, we think that we could see repeated um, much more globally. And you could imagine a round of unrest in some way similar to what we saw last year when you had sort of a wave of global public disorder. No, I think that's a very fair point. And one of the points that I was really struck by that was mentioned in the piece that I think will um, certainly a number of officials here would be watching is the implications for, I guess, what we'd call major power relations and, and how we see that playing out, particularly given uh, the dynamics with the way this has played out in China and the US. Yeah, and I think one, one thing we emphasise in the briefing is that this crisis feels very different to the 2008 financial crisis when the US, China and other powers pulled together um, actually surprisingly effectively to handle the economic situation through the G20. It also feels very different to the 2014 Ebola crisis in West Africa, where there was a slow international response. But when the US woke up to the scale of the challenge, it marshaled a big, big international effort to contain Ebola in Liberia, Cote d'Ivoire and Guinea. 
and China contributed to that too. Um, this time there's fragmentation. You can see that China is now attempting to win hearts and minds globally by offering medical assistance to countries that are just starting to feel the, the pain of the disease. US President Donald Trump has not merely failed to pull the world together, he's actually been actively divisive, attacking the Chinese, uh, attacking the European Union for mishandling the crisis, at least in his opinion. And we're seeing a fragmentation of the international system in response to COVID, rather than the sort of unification we saw in 2008. That's playing out here. The Security Council can't even agree a press statement on the crisis because the US is insisting that the statement should refer to the Chinese origins of COVID-19. I mean, this is this is shambolic as an international response, frankly. I was going to ask a little bit uh, when you were referring to that about the response of the Security Council on some of this, because it does seem to be playing out in quite an antagonistic manner. And you've even had debates, I understand, about whether the council should be meeting remotely or it actually should be going into the building and meeting in person as well. And there, there have been two, two levels of debate in New York. There's been a, uh, a wonderfully arcane technical debate that fascinates probably me and two other UN scholars about whether the council can vote if people are not meeting in person. The majority of council members, I think um, almost all of them, thought that it would be fine to continue business through video conference. And indeed, most discussions are taking place through video conference. Russia, for reasons that no one fully understands, but everyone finds very frustrating, insisted that uh, the council couldn't just vote uh, over a video link, that it either had to vote in in person or through written a written voting system. So that's been that's been at the technical level, and and a, a written voting system has now been set up. But I think the more important point is is the geopolitical one, um, which is that you know at a moment where the Security Council does not have all the answers to this crisis. Security Council can't actually really take decisive um, action over how you deal with a public health problem like COVID-19. Nonetheless, the council could have put out a reassuring message that all the big powers in the world are behind a coordinated response. And it hasn't. And instead, you've had bickering between China and the US over, over the wording of a, of a simple statement of concern. And I think that sends a very, very telling and a very, very bad message about the um, the level of UN dysfunction at the moment. I think I think you're you're quite right there. There was a real opportunity missed in terms of engaging, at least even in an in a, in a reassuring message there to the international community. So with this sort of assessment of how things are going at the moment, the concerns, the particular risks, what are some of the the recommendations that have come out of your analysis about what governments should be doing to address some of these concerns going forward, particularly given most of them are probably going to be focused on their own domestic responses at the moment? Well, I think what one thing to say is that despite the sort of pretty bleak picture, there are also some positives. In, in the middle of the month, Antonio Guterres called for... Um, a global ceasefire and called on all you know all parties in all conflicts everywhere to at least pause violence so that uh, everyone could focus on the disease and there hasn't been a global ceasefire but there has actually been quite a lot of good news we've seen armed groups from as far apart as colombia and the philippines uh committing to uh committing to pauses in hostilities uh, we've seen uh, some some interest in 
uh, in Syria from some armed groups there, uh, some interest elsewhere in the Middle East. And so it, it does feel like this might be a moment where, for all the problems, you may be able to at least uh, ease conflict in some places. And we really hope that the UN and governments, despite a lot of restrictions on where mediators can fly and, and where peacekeepers can go, will we'll pick up on those positive cases and, and see if there are ways to support peace processes that are basically enabled by COVID-19. More generally, we think that it's crucial that despite the massive economic pressures that COVID is bringing on all governments, that the international community keeps up humanitarian support to the weakest states, that um, there's a real humanitarian push to, to limit the impact of the disease in places like the Idlib enclave in Syria, or the um, Rohingya camps in Bangladesh. And that's not just a matter of goodwill or moralism. It's because if Idlib or the Rohingya camps turn into major incubators uh, for COVID-19, um, that will have a global effect because it will mean that the disease continues to, to spread, it continues to fester. And it's essential that advanced countries help weaker countries deal with that threat for the sake of, of, of the global good. Because if there isn't a global response to this, this crisis, then it's going to be very hard to stamp out the disease at any point in the foreseeable future. I think that's a, probably a very important note to, to finish on, that we are going to have to continue to look at that international response or we're not actually going to manage to address this crisis. So on that note, Richard, I might say um, good night. Thank you very much for joining us from New York on the podcast. And we hope that your self-isolation or quarantining in New York, like the rest of us, can continues to, to go well in the coming weeks. You, uh, you certainly get to know your inner demons quite well. No, I think that's very true. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Earlier this year, Bart Hogeven published his ASPE report, ICT Development in the Pacific Islands. The report assesses e-governance facilities across six Pacific Island countries. Here, Louisa and Bart discuss the report and development since its release. Bart, have been running a project uh, that looks into the ICTs for development specifically in the Pacific Islands and you've just released a report that looks at the e-governance capabilities of the region. Um, I was hoping you might be able to tell me a little bit about your project. Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, we, we just released a report assessing the e-government capabilities in six Pacific Island countries which was a project that we initiated together with the e-governance academy from Estonia and which was subsequently supported by both the Estonian Development Corporation and the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs, in particular the Cyber Corporation Program. Uh, and the idea of this project was to look at um, what are the current capabilities in the individual Pacific Island countries and what would be required to move their e-government capabilities forward whether they would require support in developing a or further strengthening a national roadmap. And we were also curious to learn whether there was scope for some kind of regional approach to developing these capabilities. So before I sort of we go into deep dive about what you found, can you tell me a bit about what you mean by e-governance? What does that mean? And especially in the context of the Pacific, how, how would you define e-governance? Yeah, I think that I mean I think that's that's probably one of the most important questions that we tried to address because um, what e-governance or e-government means to you, to people here in Australia, will be different from interpretations in a country like Estonia, um, which sees itself as um, being the number one in, in e-governance and, and being a digital nation. And what does e-government mean in the Pacific? So that's actually one of the questions we try to tackle 
upfront, although you very easily, let's say, get into the, the semantical uh, debate. So we kind of use e-government and e-governance interchangeably. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we really tried to look at was how do governments um, use ICTs, so information and communication technologies, which could range from internet connectivity to online apps, as well as mobile phones, in doing their government jobs, um, which relates to how government departments work together internally, but also how they communicate with citizens, with businesses and and, and other governments. Look, that sounds so interesting because I think especially um, as you were saying that the level of the digital hygiene in these countries is going to affect how well or how competently they can execute these this level of e-governance, um, which is obviously something that you were looking at. And, and before we really look in your findings, can you tell me a little bit about how you conducted research for this project? I know you went on a few trips around the Pacific to really um, immerse yourself and see how they were doing things on the ground. And, and what was this process like of traveling to the Pacific? Yeah, so, I mean, this project was uh, not a research project per se, um, but more of a capacity building project. So we ran a number of, of activities um, and number of regional workshops, both in the Pacific as well as Canberra, working with or inviting um, participants from, from the six Pacific Island countries. Um, so these were uh, Fiji, Papua New Guinea, Samoa, the Solomon Islands, Tonga and, and Vanuatu. So we really worked with those officials who were running their national e-government programs, be that from a technical point of view or from a policy point of view. So working with them, trying to get their perspective on their own domestic situation, their priorities, their challenges, we we kind of developed as we went along over a period of about a year and a half, um, a baseline report. And I think one of the things we really found was it's really hard to find, understand and get credible information about what capabilities are in place and, and more importantly, how they're being used by other government agencies than those units doing e-governance, as well as citizens and businesses. Look, I can totally imagine how difficult that must be. I mean, if if you think about right now in Australia, um, and we think we have pretty good um, levels of e-governance, you know, personally, my NBN hardly works and it's very difficult to get online when you're working from home. So I can only imagine how difficult that is as well when you're traveling to some of these countries and and trying to speak to some of the people there. So can you tell me a bit about the findings of of your report and and what you really found after conducting these um, capability workshops? Yeah, definitely. So so, And I think that's a very good point to underline here is that it's all about managing expectations. So when we talk about e-governance and e-government in the Pacific Island states, that's very different in terms of expectations and what kind of capabilities can you expect than than from a country like Australia or New Zealand or other um, industrialized economies. But then again, and that's I think a very interesting finding from the report, if you look at what kind of steps does every nation needs to take, um, you find that they are quite similar. You need a a government network infrastructure. Um, That's the same in Australia as it is in the Pacific Islands. You need connectivity. You need to provide certain services online, uh, be it as simple as a government email account, um, which is not even common practice in, in most Pacific Island states where you just still communicate through a Hotmail or Gmail account or providing actual apps and information services. So there are comparisons um, and, and things are very similar, uh, but just the speed, the scope and the ability to actually develop capabilities is obviously quite different and slower um, in, in the Pacific than in a country like Australia. Look, and that's really interesting because it- as you were just saying, there's so many um, comparisons. But one thing that I found really interesting out of the report was about the fact that um, there are a lot of unique challenges or opportunities um, for the Pacific 
to when implementing their their levels of e-governance, especially the geographic challenges. So things like um, a submarine ca- uh, cable may be destroyed in a unique hurricane or, or some sort of weather conditions or, you know, the rising sea levels due to climate change have different impacts on, on infrastructure. So th- this is obviously very unique challenges to the Pacific. Yes, I only kind of an anecdotal comment here. Um, I think what's made by a participant from, it was either Samoa or, or Tonga, I believe it was Tonga, when we ask him to give a presentation about cybersecurity, so you expect, let's say, a presentation about how they secure the networks and um, ICT. But his main point was, no, we've put all our government communications in a in a sea container. Um, so in the case of rising sea levels or a hurricane, we can move it to higher ground so that it's safe and, and secured in, um, in, the, in the event of a, um, a natural disaster. That's really fascinating. Yeah, and, and I think it shows, let's say, a widely different perspectives on the same terminology. So when we talk cybersecurity, it will be seen uh, it's, it's different from um, what most countries in the Pacific see as cybersecurity. And our version of cybersecurity is, and I think that that's also something that, that the report shows, is um, it's really still very much an afterthought in terms of kind of securing the networks and, and communications. And that's really interesting as well because, you know, the Pacific is so different to Australia and then the Pacific countries are so different to themselves as well. But as you were just saying initially, there's a lot of key challenges that we're all facing in Estonia or Australia or if it's Samoa, um, they're, they're the same key challenges. So that was definitely a really interesting takeaway from the report. Tell me a bit more about these case studies, so about the specific countries that you were um, looking into. Yeah, so we, we've been looking at those six specific countries, um, although we also had um, people from Kiribati and, um, and New Caledonia participating as well. But maybe first, to let's say, go back to your point about, let's say, the um, climatic circumstances and um, and the remote circumstances in the Pacific, which um, which might provide us with some barriers or some specific challenges to rolling out ICT projects. But in effect, you see that where ICTs are being used for government information services, it's it's exactly there. So, for instance, I think in Samoa, particular in the fisheries sector, there have been some some really interesting and uh, uh, developments there to provide uh, information on sea tides on where the the, the main areas for fishing are located so that's being shared with uh, the fishermen in the different villages. Vanuatu is a very interesting case in point where uh, when Cyclone Pam was approaching a couple of years ago they used their telecommunication infrastructure to send out early warning messages or early warning early warning text messages and after the cyclone they work with the two main telcos to to restore infrastructure so these are a few examples of where e-governance or e-government capabilities come into play in the pacific it's it's oftentimes there let's say it's it's on fisheries meteorological circumstances uh, it's early warning into um, when kind of a uh, a potential natural disaster or human disaster would happen and, and that's where you see where uh, capabilities are pretty pretty effective as well it sounds a lot. I mean, and I was having this conversation with Dion, who um, is heading up the Aspies Indigenous Engagement Program, and we were talking about this report. And he was saying, actually, Australia has a lot to learn from these Pacific countries um, about crisis management um, and connectivity into rural areas where there's big natural disasters that may cut off certain rural areas of Australia. And actually, we have a lot to learn in some of these responses. And it's not all of us uh, about Australia, you know, going around and being so high and mighty and teaching um, Pacific island countries what we know i think we've got a lot to learn on, on our end as well yeah definitely and, and obviously uh, i mean none of the pacific island countries went down the road of a building an nbn but they did look at different kind of ways to remain connected so there is obviously what you mentioned the 
the submarine cables um, to which all of the islands that we work with uh, are connected. But it was the incident, um, uh, I think it was a year or a year and a half ago with Tonga, where their single submarine cable was cut um, accidentally. And there was an incident blackout for two to three weeks, which had an impact uh, on the economy and how, how obviously people viewed how the government was responding. And shortly afterwards, which was, was partly coincidental and partly, I think, um, deliberate, they, they signed a contract with a satellite provider to provide services as a backup to them in cities, but also to provide internet satellite services to um, the remote outer, outer islands. And I think that's, that's a similar situation in, in some areas of rural Australia as well. Looking at their response um, techniques is actually something that we were discussing as well about, especially in response to the coronavirus. And I think a lot of um, analysts at this point are looking at the Pacific about how they're going to respond to the coronavirus in the region and how certain, um, you know, in rural areas, e-health responses and and how um, some of these kind of social isolation measures are going to be communicated online. Um, have you have you read much about that, about how they're going to be handling this um, digitally in, into the future? Well, I think one thing where, I mean, the Pacific Islands have been pioneering, or at least most donor investments have gone into uh, in the Pacific has been in, in kind of mHealth or mobile health or eHealth, where you provide health services through online means, like we're now video conferencing or teleconferencing where let's say on each island you have a, a hospital or a health clinic which can provide online services without people having to travel from one part of the island to the other part of the island um, with the risks and, and costs associated. So that's been in train for, for, for many years already. And I think in some countries we see a number of those capabilities being, being well established. When it comes to kind of um, the current situation with Corona, I think um, the Pacific at the moment is still in a, in a very lucky position that there are still only a few few cases and they're mainly uh, uh, concentrated in, in one or two islands, New Caledonia, France, Polynesia and Guam, um, whereas let's say the island that we looked at, um, only Fiji had a few cases. Um, and they, they obviously enforced, although much at a much earlier stage, uh, I recall in Australia, they enforced travel restrictions that people who traveled had to go into quarantine, I think already in early February. So I, I think they, they very well realized their vulnerability. Um, and at the moment, they're lucky, uh, and hopefully they will remain lucky. But I think they also recognize that if it would hit them, um, they're very ill-prepared, despite support at the moment provided through the World Bank in terms of preparedness. And just governments starting to communicate about, let's say, social isolation, social distancing, isolation, quarantine measures and, and hygiene in different ways. Uh, quite interesting, the Solomon Islands launched a couple of weeks ago a brand new government website portal, which I think is probably the most advanced in terms of communicating what to do and what not to do uh, at the moment. And, and some of the other islands have put information online. The question there is, of course, how... How well does that penetrate into well, into the communities? Finally, is there anything else about the report that you want to communicate? Or and, and I, I know you want to talk at an um, awesome Zoom-based Q and A session coming up, so I'm sure you can answer more questions then if people are interested. Yes, indeed. On the on April the 15th, we will organise a, a Q&A session together with our colleagues from uh, eGovernance Academy. So anyone who's interested and wants to ask questions about eGovernance in the Pacific Water Report, stay tuned through our website uh, to find the registration details. I, I think one main message from the report will be probably two. One is if, you, if you're looking for kind of online service and online capabilities by the Pacific Island government, I think there's much more than meets the eye. So all of them have their capabilities in place. And, and given the specific circumstances of, of their economies and their uh, uh, human resources, yeah, it's, it's quite an impressive, uh, I think, capability that has been developed over the last, let's say, five to 10 years. And, and of course, most of that is, is provided through international aid. If you look at spending aid money uh, efficiently and effectively, I think that there's still uh, a world to be won there. Um, you see that 
first of all, most investments are done uh, nationally, so there is not, not really a regional approach. Most of the ICT projects are kind of hidden into larger aid programs, so it's very difficult to understand um, and see and um, and measure how much money is actually going into ICTs, despite it being a priority for most for the World Bank, for the OECD, um, and, uh, and other major donors, including uh, New Zealand and, and Australia as well. So those will be my uh, kind of two main takeaways from from the report. Fantastic, and I will be tuning in on April fifteenth to hear you talk more about this topic. Perfect. Wrapping up this episode, Tom Uren of ASPE Cyber Centre and ASPE's Director of Defence Strategy and National Security, Michael Shoebridge, asks if Australia's Defence Department is adapting to changing roles and if its processes are fit for purpose or if a redesign is needed. G'day, Michael. How are you going? Oh, pretty well, Tom, as, as well as anyone can be. So we've been having uh, this ongoing debate between the two of us about the why the why of defence in the sense of why is it the way it is. Um, So when I was in defence, there was this very strong feeling that we were doing well, but uh, I've heard it described as the kind of defence malaise where we were doing well, but we thought we could do so much better. And we've been talking about the why that is. And and I kind of put it to you um, once upon a time that it was because of this instinctive risk aversion based on the kind of political nature of the system we're in. But you had a bit of a different view. Yeah, yeah. And I I think it's a fascinating thing to, to talk about. I suppose at the start, I would say, let's remind ourselves, um, we're also talking about a very activist organisation that has something fairly unique for the Australian government. It's got skilled people with machines. And when something happens in the world, it can be used to send those skilled people and machines to do good things. And it's done that for the last 20 years, but in a pretty niche way. And I suppose when I was thinking about this idea of, is it a latent good? Why can't the organization do so much more? I was thinking about purpose and design. And I was thinking about my experience when I joined the place back in 1993 as a graduate. Now, I didn't really think much about the purpose of the defence organisation or about how it was achieving it. I really thought it was my job to learn what the organisation did uh, and to contribute to that. And I kind of thought somebody else would be the directing mind that would keep the purpose fresh and be thinking about the design. Yeah, and I've always, in a somewhat similar way, felt like I was a small part of a big machine and that especially when you start, people know where the machine's headed. But it seems to me that perhaps, well, well, a couple of the observations I made is that people at different levels in defence seem to have different ideas of what the purpose was. And so sometimes that, that sort of manifested as a reluctance to innovate because people were worried about what we were trying to achieve. Um, and also that sometimes the processes weren't aligned to what we were trying to achieve. So, for example, where I was, quite often people would be trying to write a submission and they deliberately write it in a way that was quite generic because they knew that the timeframes for the submission didn't match the timeframes for technology. Uh, so if they constricted themselves too much now in three years' time when the project was delivered, it wouldn't be appropriate anymore. And I guess big organisations get very good at doing what they do not necessarily what they should be doing. 
Yeah, look, I think that's that's a good insight. I mean, there is that point, I think, people inside a big institution, there are two kinds of things. One is the tendency just to perpetuate what you're already doing and to be quite self-protective about that. And over time, that can mean you sort of wander away from your purpose or the environment around you that you should be responding to. Uh, you don't respond to well because you're kind of just perpetuating what you did before. Um, I call this the kind of departure of the architect problem because when you set up an organization, you design and you structure it for particular purposes, but all things change over time. So even what you think is a clear and continuing purpose, the nature of it will morph and how you're structuring, designing, and performing to achieve the purpose needs to change too. And that's where I think big organizations can fall into trouble. And there's um, some great writing about this um, guy called Christensen who writes about the way big entities can fail over time because they get surprised by change. But I, I think the last architect of the defense organization was Arthur Tang back in the early 70s. And the last architect of defense's purpose was Paul Dibb um, in the late 80s, early 90s. And I think we've got new purposes now for the organization, notably regional disaster response, domestic disaster response, impl security implications of climate change, as well as traditional war fighting. Uh, there are new purposes, but without a new architect, the organization might work like an immune system and expel these new demands and seek to return to, to what it already does. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Clay Christensen. And um, I, I guess what you've just spoken about then really raises the question, well, first of all, what I think is that it's very, very hard for big organizations to change. It's often easier to create a new organization to fit that new purpose. So everything about defense is optimized for the way defense is and, and mostly that's a good thing but when it comes to change um, why shouldn't we create a new organization that maybe you know in the context of the last couple of years responds to bushfires why can't we have an organization that does regional assistance what's the what's the rationale for changing the purpose of defense now, by regional i mean our region south pacific png indonesia uh, at least well i suppose my point about that is the country's demographics and the ability to have separate large organizations that have very similar attributes. So disaster response domestically and regionally, uh, you need to be able to deploy people and support them at a distance, well-equipped, well-trained for the particular tasks, and you need to be able to sustain that for a period of time. All those attributes are the exact same attributes that the defense organization has. And I just don't think that there's the national resource or demographic base to build two. I think if you tried to build two separate things, one for warfighting, one for these um, obviously emerging, growing new national challenges, both will end up failing because we will do both less well because we simply don't have the demographic or means. Now, what about the argument I can just hear coming from defence already that we need to focus on warfighting? This is what we're for. We should not get distracted by these other secondary missions. Well, I think it's an obvious argument, and I hear it all the time, but I think it's not true. It's not how the defence organisation has ever been. Most of the deployments since 1999 in East Timor have not been warfighting. 
the national and international demands on the defence organisation have been for stabilisation, counterinsurgency and counterterrorism and border security. And a lot of that has been regional stabilisation like the Solomon Islands. So it's a beguiling delusion to say that the organisation should structure for war and that's its ultimate purpose. The entire 21st century has not been that. And looking ahead and experiencing now, new missions and new purposes come along. And if there isn't a designing mind and an architect that understands that, the Clay Christopherson um, example says you end up with an irrelevant organisation that nobody invests in. Yeah, it seems to me the two options are defence sets itself up around some of these roles, uh, does them better, or it loses out and there's a separate organisation that will basically absorb some of those um, roles and, and some of the funding. And I think if you put it in those terms, it's clear that as an organisation, you'd rather grow to take new new responsibilities. Um, one of the things that I've also been interested in is, in my time in defence, we could do amazing things, but only if they were the, the top priorities of the leadership at the time. There was perhaps, you know, the bandwidth to really get one or two, maybe three things done at any one time. And if the organisation was aligned behind them, that worked tremendously well. But if it wasn't aligned behind it, it was very difficult. Mm. Oh, look, I've, I've seen that same thing too. And it's not just the Australian Defence Organisation. I was seconded to the UK Ministry of Defence for a couple of years. And they, if you think our defence organisation is big, theirs was huge. You know, it had something like 14 different uh, groups and uh, services, as we'd call them, about um, 400,000 people in it between civil servants and military people. And it was really full of inertia. But when it wanted to do a couple of things at speed, it really could. Back to East Timor, for example, it moved to deploy, I think, about 600 Gurkhas before anyone else could blink. But the problem with that is these are point solutions. And if they're point solutions for momentary passing problems, that's great. But point solutions for enduring problems are not the way to go. And this makes me think about organisational change and our defence organisation. Now, the first principles review, no one thinks about it much, but it was the uh, companion piece with the defence white paper. The deal was uh, the government would invest hundreds of billions of dollars in the defence organisation, but the organisation needed to change itself so it was fit for purpose to operate, uh, to do what the country needed in our future world. Well, one test for that first principles redesign is in the current crises, both the bushfires and the pandemic, and looking at the emerging, continuing and during challenges of security out of climate change, is the FPR machinery, the design from the first principles review being used, or is defence short-circuiting that and setting up a whole bunch of tiger teams and task forces? And I suspect it's the latter rather than the former. And that gets back to your point that while the leadership is intensely focused on these priorities, the organisation will sort of suboptimally reorganise around it, but the big machine won't change. And my point is, this is a time This is a time for an architect to look at the purposes and have the actual machine of the defence organisation redesigned for the new purposes. Yeah, and I guess what you're saying there is that the first principles review wasn't an architect? No, I don't think so. I think it was just optimising that 
design that was already there from the directing mind of Arthur Tang, and it didn't rethink the purposes that Paul Dibb put in place, although it kind of questioned them, but there was no new architect uh, either for the organization's design or for the purposes, and that's what we need now. Tom, I yes, think we're out of time. Uh, and I think we've come to a point where I agree that the first Pintles review shows how resistant an organisation can be to change. And it's a great example of how we need to rethink why. Thanks for talking to me, Michael. Yeah, Tom, I'd just end with a point, though, that uh, despite this, Defence does good things in the world. And it's one of the few parts of the Australian government that can really be an activist contributor. And it's, that's a fine thing to see. I just think it could do a lot more. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Tom. That's all for Policy, Guns and Money for this week. Make sure you listen to our special episode on Aspie's latest publication, The CT Yearbook. And we'll be back next week with another episode. As always, you can tweet us at aspie underscore org. Stay safe and see you next week.